Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, welcome back. Um, We have gotten Israel out of Egypt and into the great unknown, the, the next step. And the and we we haven't done this. God has done this. <laughs> so pretty cool episode last week. Uh, that, that's an understatement. I mean, God sends Moses in. There's the ten plagues of Egypt, and then God dramatically opens up the Red Sea for them to walk through on dry land. And it repeats a couple of times that they've got water on their left side and water on the right side. Imagine what that would do for your faith in Yahweh. I mean, man, that should be incredible. You you should bow down before this God, and they do. They are so ready to serve God in this land that he has promised to give them. And we ended last week in Exodus 15, where this is a really cool song, or psalm really, that kind of recaps what God has done and talks about how great he is and how he truly is Yahweh. And then it brings us to chapter 15 and verse 22 which I am sorry to say is, is not really encouraging but discouraging to see what happens to the children of Israel um, as soon as they step foot into the wilderness. So we'll go ahead and read that. Let's read, let's read Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of Yahweh your God, and if you do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, Yahweh, am your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Three days. They make it three days without complaining. It's just sobering uh, because we do this all the time. And after all that God has done for them, uh, and now, granted, you have a nation of you know six hundred thousand plus people in the middle of nowhere now, and they are venturing out toward Canaan. It's going to take them about three months to get there, and they uh, go three days into the wilderness. They don't find any water. When they finally do find water, it's bitter, uh, hard to drink, and so they complain against Moses. Uh, saying, what shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord answers them. I think we see the first example of complaining and the first example of God's mercy and patience with this generation in the wilderness. But we also learned that this was a test. That's the other thing to see here. There are going to be multiple tests as they're going through the wilderness as God is trying to shape them into being the people that he wants them to be if they're going to go into this land that he's going to give them. And by the way, that's not shocking to us. Because that's exactly what he did in the book of Genesis, isn't it, Stephen? He tested Abraham. He tested Jacob. He tested Isaac. He tested Joseph. They all went through a trial of sorts to prove their faith to God. And so it should not be surprising to us or them 
that God is going to test them here as well. Mm-hmm, that's right. And I don't want to gloss over. Three days without water is not easy. I just took a sip of water a few seconds ago because imagine even going three hours a whole day without water. It would be hard. But in the face of what God has just done, it seems to be very discouraging and disappointing that they are so quick to grumble against the Lord. Yes. And one of the things we're going to see throughout this particular generation is they complain pretty constantly. And God hates complaining. And just being honest, I I struggle with this. Uh, It is so easy for me to complain. And sometimes it's not in such overt ways, but just ingratitude, failing to give thanks to God for what he's done. Um, I I need to see these stories and see myself in them uh, because God has done such great things for us, just just like he did for them. In in Christ, he brings us out of slavery and to sin. And yet we so quickly forget and we complain about the food. We complain about whatever it is. And we have so little or really nothing to complain about um, when we compare it to the the way that God has blessed us. And to make it real to ourselves, just real quick, um, let's say God delivers us, right? And we might have a victory of some kind. Maybe it'd be a a temptation we get through or might be through a hard thing that's happened in our life and God delivers us. What are you doing three days later? Have you ever fallen back into complaining and doubting God and, and maybe blaming him for certain problems? I know I have. And so before we kind of laugh at the Israelites and say, y'all are so silly, y'all are dumb, man, we've done the same thing. And it's something Paul will point out in 1 Corinthians 10 as well, by the way, mm-hmm, and right. in Philippians uh, Philippians 2 as well. We yes. shouldn't grumble or complain. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Mm-hmm. So this is the first challenge, the first test that they face in the wilderness. The second one is in chapter 16, and it's where they continue on for a couple of months. And, of course, they brought some food with them from Egypt, but the food runs out, and they're like, where are we going to eat? Um, This is the 15th day of the second month after they come out. And in verse 3, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It is amazing to me the selective memory that we can have. Just just jog my memory here, Stephen. Uh, Did I skip over it, or was there a time that they were sitting by pots of meat and eating (laughs) bread to the full? Yeah, now I don't know what their rations were as slaves in Egypt, but they don't talk about the slavery part or the oppression part or the killing the children part. I was about to say, yeah. I mean, (laughs) man, it's like, it's amazing how quickly we forget the oppression and, and the tyranny of sin. And just think about, oh, it was so nice before we were out here in this situation. They forget. And the Lord still has mercy on them. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. I'm going to make it rain bread in the middle of nowhere. That's how I'm going to provide for you. Man, if this isn't the creator, I mean, he is going to rain bread out of heaven to provide for his people. But notice what he says. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion. Give us this day our daily bread. That's where that comes from, this idea. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. We learn that the manna and the gathering of the manna really is a test to the people to see if they will trust God's word. We learn there's going to be consequences for those who will not follow God's word here. If they gather too much, it'll end up spoiling. And guess what they do, by the way? They gather too much. (laughs) They don't do it exactly like God said, and then what God said ends up happening. 
How often have we pushed the envelope of what God said and it backfired in our face? Um, but these children of Israel, they're being tested here um, so God can shape them into who they need to be. Yeah, because after a time without food, what do you want to do? You want to hoard it. You want to take everything uh, and, and store it up. And he's saying, no, you've got to trust me. I, I take just enough for today. And he makes one exception here um, that he he's going to. This is the first mention of the, the keeping of the Sabbath day. Um, where he says on, on the sixth day you gather twice as much because on the seventh day I'm not going to send it. So you rest on the Sabbath. You don't gather on the Sabbath. Um, so gather twice as much on the sixth day. And later the Sabbath will become part of their law. Now they haven't gotten to Sinai yet. They haven't received the law, um, the Ten Commandments. But yeah, this is the first mention of the Sabbath day in this chapter, which is just interesting. But I do think this test of the manna, God is both showing his mercy by providing manna, bread from heaven, sent to them. Which, by the way, the word manna, uh, they give the, the name manna because they say, what is it, in verse 15. Yeah. And that is what manna sounds like. What, what is it? Um, but it's interesting that it, it is a, a blessing from God, but it's a, a test at the same time. And God can do that sometimes. He can bless us and be testing us with that blessing simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Again, we're learning how God works with people as we're reading these Old Testament stories and learning who God is. And really, that's a really big part of the book of Exodus is Israel has been rescued by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they don't know, apparently, a lot about him. And so he's kind of introducing himself to his own people who have multiplied from the family of Abraham and saying, all right, here's who I am. Here's how I work with you. Here's how I'm going to work with you individually and as a nation. And that's going to be a big part of uh, what we're learning as we read these stories. Yeah, and so um, they begin to observe the Sabbath day. This is something that was instituted um, or right here shortly, um, shortly before this. And ultimately it goes back to the creation account um, where God rested on the seventh day. And so these children of Israel are told to rest on the seventh day as well. So... They're tested with food in the wilderness, which, by the way, Jesus is going to describe himself in John 6 as the bread that came down from heaven, the true bread. Uh, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and died, but whoever eats of my flesh will live forever. So it's really interesting how this is, forms the background for Jesus' statement. Um, and, and then into Exodus 17, we're going to have the, the, the next complaining is that there's no more water again. And this time there's no water at all, not even bitter water. And God is going to provide uh, water from a rock, which is like the last thing that you would expect to get water from. And that's what God can do, is he can bring water out of the middle of nowhere in a rocky, dry desert. And again, the New Testament will remind us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock that followed them was Christ. Was Christ. Yeah. Um, he is the bread. He is the source of the water. Uh, he's the living water. We'll, we'll read in John 4. Again, so much of this is going to point us to Jesus. And we're just just touching the hem of the garment on this as far as uh, looking at shadows of Christ. But in the middle of nowhere, God is providing for a whole nation. Hundreds of thousands of people are able to eat and drink to the full day by day in the middle of nowhere because God is sustaining their life. He provides what they need even when they should all be dead in the wilderness, but God's keeping them alive. And so here in verse 2, it tells us as they are quarreling with Moses that they wanted some water, Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Mm-hmm. It's kind of flipped on its head. God is testing them, but now they're testing God. 
Right. And guess what? That is a one-way street. <laughs> it's no, not, it's right. not a two-way street. We don't get to test the creator. That's not how this works. And that is why this place will end up being called um, Masa or Meribah because of the core of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Mm-hmm. And from this, we'll learn this in a future episode in Deuteronomy, we learn that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's something Jesus uses when he's tempted in Matthew chapter 4. Some really cool side points we can make about that, but we will not right now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's so many parallels between the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and what Israel is going through. This is not yet the 40 years, by the way. Uh, we're going to get to that later in the book of Numbers. This is just the three-month trip from Egypt to Mount Sinai that we're talking about in this episode. Uh, so it's just helpful because in my mind, I think about like immediately there in the wilderness for 40 years. But that's actually after a failed attempt to to uh, go into the land. And they're going to spend like two years, give or take, at Mount Sinai before they get there. Right. So this is... Uh, um, just really interesting to see the, the sequence of events. Also interesting is at the end of Exodus 17, you have um, a, a, a battle, uh, their first kind of military encounter. Um, Amalek comes out against Israel at the end of chapter 17, and it is the first mention that we have of Joshua, where he's choosing men to fight, and it's a pretty epic victory. Uh, the Lord blesses uh, Joshua, and this is also where Moses holds up his hands, and as long as he holds up his hands, Israel wins. Yeah. When he lets his hands down, the Amalek starts winning, and so they put a stone under Moses, and Aaron and Hur hold up his hands uh, so that Israel wins this battle. Yeah. Um, so again, you obviously see it's the Lord. Uh, through Moses, through Joshua, yeah. giving his people deliverance. I don't know if this is the first mention. I should have looked this up, but this is where it specifically says as well that Yahweh said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Um, we know from several different places in Scripture that Moses was the one that scribed and wrote down many of the things that we read about in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So for what it's worth, this is one of those times where we are told um, that it is... Um, that it is Moses who wrote these things out. And uh, I love in verse 15, Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of cool to think about. And he said, The Lord was, has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Again, another side point we could get onto. So many rabbit trails that we are not running down. But that's okay, because that moves us into chapter 18, where we are told about Jethro, the priest of Midian, who was Moses' father-in-law. Mm-hmm. And he hears about what God has done, and he um, sees that Moses has his hands full and um, comes to him, and there's sacrifices that he offers to Yahweh. Again, very interesting, just kind of the background of Jethro. We're not told a lot about him. But um, he asks, why are you doing all this alone? I mean, you're, you're helping the people, but man, you need to delegate some of this judging business and be able to not have to bear this whole burden yourself. And so Moses takes Jethro's advice. This is wise advice. Um, he's given qualities for these people. This is kind of a foreshadowing of, the, of elders being appointed over God's people under the new covenant as well. Shepherds or elders being appointed. But um, Moses is able to have a much lighter burden after uh, he delegates some of this authority and has the people judge the smaller cases and just bring the big cases to him. And so um, Moses is able to continue serving as a, kind of a chief shepherd of God's people in the wilderness. And um, that brings us to Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, as it's sometimes called, 
in Exodus chapter 19. And this is such an important time in Israel's history. And actually, what's interesting about this is their time at Mount Sinai will take us from Exodus chapter 19 all the way through the book of Numbers chapter 10 or so, that they're going to be camped at Mount Sinai for give or take two years. And this time at Sinai dominates the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. Again, so much of it we think about the wilderness experience and the 40 years and stuff. But actually, time-wise, not a lot of text is given to the 40 years later on. A lot of the text, the majority of the text, is given to Israel's time camped at Mount Sinai, learning about the Lord, learning who Yahweh is, how he wants to have a relationship, a Mm -hmm. covenant relationship with them. And it's all going to start here in Exodus 19 and 20 with the start of their time at Mount Sinai. So this is a cool thing to see. When God is going to lay down law or make a covenant with someone or introduce new law or whatever have you, you will often see a recurring theme with God. He starts by reminding people of things. He starts by defining the relationship based off of what he has already done for them. And so in chapter 19 and verse 3, as Moses went up to God and Yahweh called on him from the mountain, God said to say this to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the nations, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. One of God's opening things to these people as he's just brought them out of Egypt is, A, y'all better remember what I did because that should propel you forward. That should push you forward in your faith in me. Because secondly, I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. You are my possession. That, that is what this boils down to. You are my people, and so I'm going to be your God. Yes. And this is a really cool word for treasured possession. Um, this language is going to be echoed in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, You are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a people for God's own possession. It's very similar to the language here in Exodus 19. And it's so cool to think about. He mentions, All the earth is mine. Of all the peoples on the earth, you belong to me in a special way. And I will treasure you. You will be my own. And and he's going to be, give a lot of instruction about the priests um, in the future chapters. And, of course, it's not going to be all the people who serve physically as priests. Sure. But he tells them in verse 6 that I want you to be a kingdom of priests to me. The whole nation is to really be a priesthood in a sense. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's only going to be the Levites and the house of Aaron that are literally priests. But he says, I want you, the whole nation to be a kingdom of priests yeah. to me. And, again, we're going to be parallels to the New Covenant, and we're all a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood in the New Testament as well. So it's just cool cool groundwork being laid here for later on. And what this boils down to is really what we saw from the very beginning in Genesis. God wants a relationship with his people. God was dwelling in the garden with Adam and Eve. They, they were a part of God's, of God's presence. Um, and so what ended up happening was sin separated that. You are now starting to see God coming back to his people but it's going to be established through a covenant and a covenant that they have to hold up on their end of the deal as well. That's right. And really, this is the formation of a nation of people. Up to this point, it's just been a family. Mm-hmm. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, their descendants. But now he's saying, you're going to be a nation. You're going to, I'm going to give you a government. I'm going to give you ruler. I mean, this is going to 
organize you into something that you were not before. Uh, make a nation out of what used to not be a nation. So what's going to be interesting as we go through the time in Exodus 19 through 40, we're going to see there are, depending on how you count, seven times that Moses goes up Mount Sinai in this section. I always thought of it as like once he like went up for 40 days and got the tablets and came down and that whole bit. But there's actually going to be like seven different trips. And so on this first trip up Sinai that God makes this important statement to them about being a kingdom of priests and his special treasured possession. But he goes up again after that and he says, get ready for the third day. I'm going to come down on the mountain in smoke and fire. Get ready for that. And then third trip, Moses he reminds Moses, hey, warn the people, don't even touch the mountain um, or you're going to die. And then when Moses comes down from the third trip, Exodus chapter 20, I missed this for the longest time. God speaks the Ten Commandments from the storm on Mount Sinai Terrifying. to the people. Terrifying to think about, but that's really the idea they need to fear this God. That's right. And I think it's, it's obvious we need to read this. Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So Israel hears these words thundered from the storm that's at the top of Mount Sinai. And they cower in fear. In Mm -hmm. verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So so this is just, again, a testing of the people that they realize God is not to be trifled with. God is actually pleased that they are so scared of him in this moment because he wants to get the fear of him into them. And now the fear of the Lord is going to be more than just being scared of God as we look at it over the course of the scriptures. But here it does include fear. It includes a terror of we could be destroyed in an instant by this all-powerful God. 
And yet, God is giving us rules. God is giving us a way that we can please him and honor him and live on his good earth in a way that pleases this God. And so it's a blessing that he's giving them his laws. And we'll see later on uh, how these ten words, these ten commandments, are going to uh, form the kind of the the basis for the rest of the law. It's not just ten rules. He's going to give them, like I think it's like over 600, depending Mm -hmm. on how you count, uh, other laws but they're all kind of come back to these ten, and actually they really boil down to two, Jesus will say, that aren't in the ten. Mm-hmm. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. Uh, but those will come up later in the law. But it's interesting to me that the rest of the time, this kind of sets up Moses as the mediator. The people are so scared to hear the voice of God. They say, Moses, you go up there and you talk to God and tell us what he says, but we're scared to death to even hear his voice. Yeah. And so also just to highlight that these commandments all really run back to, as Stephen already said, the, the two greatest commandments that Jesus will give. But God is your God. No other God is your God. Don't even think about worshiping another God as your God. That's repeated over and over again here. Mm-hmm. And guess what's going to be the biggest problem for this nation? <laughs> Idolatry. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so God said it a lot, um, and he meant it because he knew what they'd be tempted to do. That's right. So Moses goes up for a fourth time on Mount Sinai, and this is where uh, there's kind of various laws given. They're a new nation, and so they need laws. And so in Exodus 20, verse 22, going all the way through chapter 24, verse 2 or so, um, this is going to be the fourth trip up Mount Sinai where he gives a lot of different laws about various things, Uh, laws about how they treat each other, uh, laws about making restitution when something is destroyed or or stolen, Uh, laws about social justice, laws about the Sabbath and festival days. He'll also make a promise at the end about conquering the land of Canaan. Um, They're still on their way to Canaan the first time, and um, he's going to talk about how he's going to take care of them. In that conversation where God's talking about going into the land, let me just highlight a couple things God said. You should not worship their gods nor serve them. Um, He says in in chapter uh, 23, down in verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them or their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Guess what God is still warning them about? Mm -hmm. Idolatry. Watch out. He's shouting it to them. Um, Be careful here. That's right. And so uh, we are obviously not going to read through all of this uh, section, but this first set of laws that... um, God gives them, there's going to be kind of a ceremony that happens in Exodus 24 after Moses comes down uh, before the fifth trip up where they, he says, okay, like, do do you sign? (laughs) Sign on the dotted line. They're not literally going to sign the dotted line. There's going to be blood that seals this covenant. But let's read this um, in verse uh, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 11. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules and the people and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words that Yahweh has spoken we will do and Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood 
and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So it's going to be kind of a couple of different parts of this ceremony. And the first is the reading of the law. He, Moses goes through everything, reviews what God has told him on the mountain. Writes it down. And writes it down, reads it to the people so that they know exactly what they're getting into. They know the, the stipulations and say, all right, this is what God expects of me. This is the behavior he wants from me. This is what I need to do. And they agree. I say, all that Yahweh has spoken, that's what we're going to do. And then he seals it with blood, and it's notable that he calls it the blood of the covenant in verse 8. Mm-hmm. Because this is going to be a phrase that's going to be picked up by Jesus Yes, on the night he's betrayed. And he says, take this cup. This is the blood of the covenant. And it's very interesting there that Jesus, when he's instituting a new covenant with his people... And the Lord's Supper is a symbol of that covenant. Um, he's going to use the same language out of this passage in Exodus 24 when God was making a covenant with Israel. Yeah. It's like the first covenant. And as the scriptures talk about washing away our sins in the waters of baptism, it carries with it this idea that when we come into contact with that water, we're coming into the contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in like manner that this covenant is being ratified by blood being shed on the people here, in like manner, as we are baptized, as we come into contact with the blood of Jesus, we are also ratifying a covenant. We are, we are saying, I'm making a deal with you, God. I am giving my life over to you. I'm signing on the dotted line, like Stephen said. Mm-hmm. And the other part of this ceremony that's interesting is in Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11, where it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And so, as would be customary uh, in the ancient world, um, there was a covenant meal that often accompanied the making of a pact or a covenant between two parties. And the leaders of the people are invited up on the mountain for a covenant meal. And they see at least the feet of God and like this stone, this pavement thing that's kind of hard to describe that God is standing on. It's kind of like the, the base of his throne. And they eat and drink with God on the mountain. And so again, Jesus institutes yeah. a covenant meal at the Lord's Supper and the blood of the covenant. There's so many connections here to what we have in the new covenant. But this would have been a, an amazing thing that the leaders, the people, get just this glimpse of God uh, here in Exodus 24. Yeah, and then God invites Moses up the mountain, come up to the mountain and remain there. I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. I had not noticed this before, Stephen. In verse 13, Moses arose with Joshua, Mm -hmm. his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Moses goes up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. Everyone else is terrified to go up there, mm-hmm. but Joshua goes. That's really cool. Yeah, and actually what's going to be interesting is Joshua goes a little farther, but it's going to be Moses himself that goes into the cloud on the top of the mountain. Um, 
verse 15, and then uh, in verse 18, Moses entered the cloud mm-hmm. and went up on yep. the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Joshua's the closest one, but there's kind of like three groups. There's like the 70 elders that go partway up. Moses and Joshua go a little farther, and then Moses himself yeah. goes alone into the cloud. Yeah, that's cool. It's very interesting, which, again, I think there's going to be connections here in the New Testament when there's the, tra- the Mount of Transfiguration, and they enter a cloud on top of a mountain, and there's Moses and Elijah. And, again, it's very interesting. Jesus talks about his exodus. That's right. Yeah. So many cool things to look forward to. So the next section, this is the fifth trip up Sinai. And this next big chunk uh, of trip five is 24, verse 9, all the way through chapter 31. And on this particular trip, it's all the instructions for the tabernacle and the priestly garments and other things relating to the service that's going to go on at the tabernacle. And so what is happening here is God is planning to, to move in among his people. He's planning to come and dwell with them. And this is just such a blessing, such a, a privilege that the people uh, get to have so that the Lord can dwell in the midst of his people and uh, make his home with them. And they can, can know him and have him there among them. Yes. I would just love to, to point out, as God is giving these commandments on how to make his stuff, how to make... Uh, and by the way, they're using the stuff that they took out of Egypt. So if you think about the provision there, it's really cool. I want to read, uh, read a phrase that will come up a lot in these chapters that we're kind of breezing over. Um, this is specifically Exodus twenty five forty. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Mm-hmm. God very specifically says, and in chapter 26, 30, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. It comes up over and over again where God says, now listen, I want you to do it my way. I want you to do it the exact way that I said. Um, you see it again in chapter 27, verse 8. You shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. And what does that tell us? When God says he wants something done, you do it his way. That's right. uh, you don't add to it. You don't take away from it. You do it exactly how he said. Yes. And so there's all sorts of instruction given. This is going to be a beautiful tent. Now, it is a tent. It's a mobile structure that they're going to move around the wilderness and be able to worship God. Um, but it is to be ornate. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of artistry and things that go into that. God actually fills two guys with his spirit, Aholiab and Bezalel in chapter 31, and gives them the knowledge and craftsmanship to, to do all this, all the artistic designs and uh, things that would need to be done to engrave the gold and things that would go into the tabernacle. It's beautiful to think about this, um, that God wants uh, the beauty of the tabernacle to symbolize uh, the holiness of his yes, presence. That's exactly right. But, of course, the tabernacle, without God dwelling there, is going to be pointless. Uh, later on in Israel's story, they're going to end up trusting far too much in the physical building that represents God's presence without trusting in God himself. Yeah, it also goes over for us what the priest, the one that will be, um, you know, talking to the Lord or advocating, that's the word I'm looking for, on behalf of the people to the Lord, what they're going to wear. I mean, these people, these men, they're just as sinful as the rest of the people. So what they're going to be wearing is holy, is the word that comes up over and over again. And it's separate, um, and it's symbolic of how holy and separate our God is. And so that's all of chapter 28 is about what those guys are wearing. Yep. And what they're going to do is they're going to represent the people to God, 
They wear a breastplate with 12 stones on it that represents each of the 12 tribes as they go into the tabernacle representing the people to God. But they're going to also represent God to the people. They mm-hmm. have a, 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 th- a plate on their forehead that says, Holy to Yahweh. And they're to represent holiness to the people by their actions and their words and teaching the people the law. Uh, so there's a lot more about priesthood that we'll read about in the coming books. But uh, this is kind of the introduction of some of those ideas um, in these chapters. Then our appetite is, is whetted a little bit in chapter 29 for what the sacrifices are going to look like. Um, there will be more on that in the book of Leviticus, but God goes ahead and tells us a little bit about that in chapter 29 as well. So it's on this fifth trip up Sinai at the very end of Exodus 31 that Moses actually gets the two tablets, (laughs) which is funny because God has already spoken the Ten Commandments earlier, but now he gives uh, the tablets at the end of this fifth trip, which is just kind of interesting. Um, uh, It's not until now that he actually gets these, and they're written with the finger of God. Um, In Exodus 31, verse 18, he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And so now Israel has kind of all the pieces that they need to make a place for God to dwell among them and to come down from Sinai and dwell in the midst of his people and go with them to the promised land. It's great. Everything's going so well. And now uh, the people have agreed to the covenant. This is almost like a marriage ceremony. That like now God is their husband. They are his bride. And he's going to dwell with his people. And they're going to go together uh, to live together in the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What could go wrong? Well, Exodus 32 uh, can go wrong. (laughs) And we're going to find out what is happening meanwhile, because this fifth trip is where Moses spends 40 days up there on top of the mountain, over a month mm-hmm. that he's up there. Yeah. And so chapter 32 says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. They tore off all the gold rings which were on their ears and bring them to Aaron. And he took them from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made into it a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. How sad. I mean... We've already emphasized it. What was like rule number one? Like <laughs> no other gods, hey, no graven images. Yeah, no graven images. Like don't don't even like make something and say this is God. You know, no, 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 no. Your God is, I am who I am. You're not going to be able to contain God with anything your human hands have made. And yet, here they are trying to do just that. Mm-hmm. And by the way, God has made provision for Himself to dwell with His people. He's telling. He just told Moses how to do it. If they would just be patient and wait. For Moses to get back, he will tell them what they need to build so that God can come and dwell with them. Mm-hmm. But they get impatient, and they take matters into their own hands. And obviously that's going to upset Moses, and more so it's going to upset God. That's right. And it wasn't the only thing they were doing. In, in verses 5 and 6, it says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Now he's, he's making up his own feast days, uh, and he's trying to connect this with Yahweh, even though it's an idol, it's, it's a calf, it's an image of something that God made. It's not God himself, but they're trying to still serve the same God, but in a way that they've invented. 
And in verse 6, it says, They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This will be quoted in the New Testament about some of the other uh, sinful practices that were associated with idol worship mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, including sexual morality and other things. And so, meanwhile, up on the mountain, God tells Moses, he knows exactly what's going on, and he says, Go down. Your people who you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And he tells Moses about what the people are doing. And Moses goes down the mountain. Which, by the way, in here, Moses says, he he implores and intercedes for the people on behalf of God. And says, um, remember your covenant that you swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, remember the Egyptians. What are they going to say if you kill your people in the wilderness? Um, and so the Lord relents from the disaster, but Moses comes down when he hears the sound of what's going on and he sees what they're doing. In verse 19, he says, As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. The people have already broken God's laws, mm-hmm. but almost as a symbolic act, Moses literally breaks the tablets that he's just gotten from God on the mountain because the people have broken God's law. And if you think Moses couldn't be any more angry or do anything crazier, read verse 20. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it over the surface of the water, and made the sons of Israel drink it. Man, sounds a little on the extreme side, but what do you think the symbolism behind this is? But look at the mess you've created. You, you, You are going to eat and reap or drink the mess that you've created here. Yeah, kind of you made your bed, now lie in it kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. And so we're left with this question. What kind of God is, is Yahweh? The people have come. He's done everything for the people, saved them, provided for them, dealt with their complaining, brought them to himself, and now they have totally blown it right there at the wedding ceremony, like right there at Mount Sinai. Can, can things be made right? What kind of God is this? Is he a God who forgives? What's going to happen next? Is this whole project over? Are we going back to Egypt? What's going to happen next? And this is where I think it's really powerful. In Exodus 32, um, in verse 30, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So, so Moses goes up to God and says, All right, people, I'm, I'm going to try to make this right. I'm going to try to go to God on your behalf, and I'm going to try to make atonement for your sin. Maybe God will forgive you for what you've done. And who does Moses offer? Himself. He offers himself. Like, if you won't forgive the people, just take me instead. How powerful and selfless and how much like Jesus is Moses in this moment. Now, God doesn't let Moses do this. In verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Um, and there's a plague that happens as a consequence of the people's sin. So God doesn't allow Moses to stand in for the people. He, he's not worthy to do that. But it anticipates one who will be worthy to stand in for the people one day, uh, Jesus. 
there's going to be some more fallout that happens from this. Yeah. Uh, God says in chapter 33 that he's not going to go with them. Uh, you go on to the land, but I'm going to stay here. And they are just torn up about that. How can we go if God doesn't go with us? And so Moses again intercedes for the people and says, please go with, uh, with us. And God says, I will go with you and I will give you rest. Um, chapter 33, verse 14. But Moses in there, he also has a request of God. He says, show me your glory. Which you remember the first time he met God at the burning bush, he was afraid to even look at God. But now, the more that he's learned about this God, he says, I want to see your glory. Show me who you really are. And one of the most important statements in the whole Old Testament happens as a result of this. This is the seventh trip up Mount Sinai. Trip number six was Moses offering himself to God. But trip number seven happens in Exodus 34. And I just want to read verses five through seven, or five through eight here. Exodus 34, five. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Who, who is Yahweh? He is a God is, of grace and mercy. This is who God is. Yes, your sins can be forgiven. Yes, he will continue to work with you even after you've totally messed things up and turned your back on him. He will take you back over and over again. Now, he's still serious about sin. He's not going to leave sin unpunished. But this is so important to see the nature of God revealed to the people of Israel here at Mount Sinai after they've totally blown it because this is going to be who God is going forward. And they will continue to be able to have a relationship with him. But it's ultimately only going to be through the blood of Jesus that he'll be able to forgive uh, this people. And so the covenant is eventually going to be renewed between God and his people. Um, things kind of resume. Um, it's like, man, how, how do things even resume after this? Um, but maybe these words mean all the more to the people. Like in chapter 34, verse 14, You shall not worship any other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Mm. Uh, this is the God that they serve. Hopefully they've learned from this lesson so far. And so Moses uh, writes these downs word, excuse me, writes these words down as God had commanded him, and he was with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights in chapter 34 and 28. And it's the second time, by the way. Trip five was 40 days, and trip seven is also 40 days. Yep. When he comes down the mountain, Moses' face is shining. Yeah. By just reflecting the glory that he saw. So he puts a veil over his face. There's a lot of significance given to that in Second Corinthians chapter 3. No time to get into that right now. Um, but at the end of the book of Exodus, as we wrap up, we find the people doing what he told Moses on the fifth trip. They build the tabernacle and go through. And it's a lot of repetition of them doing exactly what the pattern was that God showed them on the mountain. And God is still going to move in with his people. He is still going to dwell with them, and they will still be his people. And that's so important to see is that God is a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. And he's going to make a way to dwell with his people even after they, and we, have messed up so grievously. 
And for all the, the failures of Israel up until this point in Exodus, I will say it, it's super cool to see them coming together to put their hands to the work that needed to be done. Um, many of them were, were skilled in different trades as a result of being slaves in Egypt. And they come together to build some magnificent um, uh, tabernacle pieces and the tabernacle itself, just as God had said. In fact, I'll read chapter 39 and verse 42. The sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined all the work, and behold, they had done it, just as Yahweh had commanded. This they had done. So Moses blessed them. They followed God to a T. With everything he said on how to build it, they followed him. Um, and that is really important for them to do. And I think they've learned that lesson. Yeah, amen. And so the book of Exodus is going to end with God, with move-in day. Yeah. Um, Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So this scene is really important, not only because now God is dwelling with them and leading them as they're going to go through the wilderness, but it's also symbolic of other temple scenes that we're going to see in the, in the Old Testament as well. Um, when the temple will eventually be built by King Solomon, we'll see move-in day that's very similar to this passage. And we'll see a very similar thing in Acts, the second chapter. That's cool to look at those parallels. Maybe we'll do that another day. One interesting thing that's going to set up for next week is that Moses is not able yet to go into the tabernacle. In Leviticus 1, verse 1, the Lord will speak to Moses from the tent, but by the beginning of the book of Numbers, the Lord will speak to Moses in the tent. Yes. So the tabernacle's up, God has moved in, but can we dwell with a holy God? The book of Leviticus is going to give us the way in which God makes uh, a way to go into his presence and uh, make atonement for sin. So Lord willing, next week we'll pick up there and we'll start in Leviticus by learning about the different sacrifices that God has in mind for his people. That's right. Thank you all for listening this week. If you are enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. If you're interested in online Bible studies or personal questions that you'd like to talk with us about the Bible, uh, we'd be happy to talk with you. 717-585-0949. Text us or call us, or you can email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on studies, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.